but uh, this morning we will look at 1 Corinthians 15. I figure it a, a appropriate, fitting uh, on Resurrection Sunday to uh, consider uh, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, it's our practice to stand when we read, read God's Word. We won't read all 58 verses. I was really tempted. Uh, but we won't read all 58. We'll read most of the 58, but not all of the 58. So, if you're able, uh, please stand as we read God's Word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers of the Gospel, I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the Word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely timely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach... And so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. Skip down to verse 50. I told you we wouldn't read it all. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall, all, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit, You have recorded these words for us. You have preserved these words for us. And now we would not understand them And we certainly wouldn't be affected by them, but that you are at work in them even now. So would you till the soil of our hearts to receive your word, that it might grow and bear much fruit. Through Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are people out there, people you know, uh, people you're related to, people you work with, people in your neighborhood, who think that the idea of the resurrection is uh, the biggest April Fool's joke ever told. They're just waiting for somebody to jump out, I don't know, from behind the next door, from behind a tree, from behind some rock, and and cry out, April Fools, it's a joke, we were just pretending all along, it's it's never been real. I was actually tempted this morning to pull such an April Fools joke on my kids. Uh, We hide Easter baskets uh, in our house, yes, they're not too old for that, because who doesn't like candy? But um, I really thought about saying, yeah, your baskets are hidden, and not actually hiding them, and then playing the April Fools card on them this morning. The resurrection is not a... It's not every day that, that we see people come back from the dead. I mean, it's not every day. Nancy and I just, I don't know, six weeks ago or so, were in Oxford for the funeral of a 70-year-old man, a friend of ours, actually one who supported this church early on uh, in our earlier days. I haven't, he hadn't posted on Twitter lately. He hadn't commented on LinkedIn either, for that matter. And I haven't seen any of his family members post any pictures of him, you know, at work or milling around Oxford on Instagram. It's not every day that you and I bump into people whose funeral we attended just a week or two or a month ago or so. Someone coming back from the dead is a... It's at least rare. We have to grant that. And that's sort of the point. um, If you've ever seen the Night at the Museum movies, uh, the second Night at the Museum movie, Kamen Ra, 
this old ancient Egyptian pharaoh comes back to life and he says to Larry Daly, who's the, the main character, you know, from the darkest depths of ancient history, I, and then he builds this big crescendo, like this is a really big deal, have come back to life. And Larry Daly kind of looks at him blankly and says, huh. And Common Ross says, perhaps you did not understand what I just said. And then he sort of recounts the story again. I have come back to life. It's, he expects a reaction because it's not normal. That's not an everyday event. We don't see people ever who have come back from the dead. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, to remind us all over again of the, the necessity of the reality and the necessity and the benefits of Christ's resurrection. He anticipates objections. He knows the, the, the Corinthians don't believe in the resurrection themselves. They, they believe that the body uh, basically dies and it stays there in the grave. The soul lives on and he writes, he begins this chapter and obviously there's no way we can cover everything in this entire chapter. So we're not even, don't worry, don't, don't think we're going to be here for the next six hours because it could take at least uh, that long. But he expects objections. He expects the, the church in Corinth, as, as the letter's being read, as he starts to talk about the resurrection, there, there perhaps were visitors in the church that, that Sunday or whatever, and they start elbowing and, and looking at each other like, can you, can you believe this guy? This guy actually believes that, that the body is going to be raised from the dead? I mean, what a ridiculous idea. What a ridiculous Notion. Paul seems to anticipate those objections. The idea of a resurrection violates everything we know about our experience and about science. So Paul begins by reminding us of the reality of the resurrection. In Deuteronomy 19, uh, we read in Deuteronomy 19.15, it sets the, the standard for um, the minimum requirement for putting a, a criminal to death. If, if, if you're going to exact capital punishment on a criminal, you have to have multiple witnesses. It's, it's, it's safety, right? It, it prevents you know, one of you just getting angry at someone else in the room and pretending, making up a story. If there's no one else to corroborate your story, then, then we assume your story is not True. It takes at least two or three witnesses in order to convict a criminal to death. Paul then, in verses 3 and 4, rolls out not two witnesses, not three witnesses, but more than 500 of them. There's more than 500 people to whom Christ, having been raised from the dead, appears. He appears to, to Cephas first, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Okay, there apparently, if you read John 10, there weren't actually twelve in the room the first time. In fact, it was probably just ten. Judas Iscariot is gone. He's out of the way. He's, he's, he's gone. Thomas apparently wasn't there. So technically it was just ten in the upper room when Christ appeared the first time to His disciples. But they're still the twelve. The twelve is a title, not a number. He's not 
counting how many people were in the room. It's, it's a title because in the next time he appears, Thomas is there. And you remember, you remember Thomas, here are my hands, here's my side. Touch, touch them, feel the scars. Know that this really is who I say I am. He appears to the twelve. He appears to those disciples in the upper room. And then He appears to more than 500 believers at one time. Some have died. Some have, have fallen asleep, Paul tells us. But most of them are still alive. The point is, go ask them. Catch a flight to Israel. They're still alive. They're over there. You can go ask them. Take them to lunch. Meet them for coffee. Get together with them. Ask them their story. Some have fallen asleep. Some are gone. Some are no longer around. But most of them are still there. I mean, the, in other words, you believer in Corinth, you could actually sit down with these people. Hundreds of them who will all tell you the same story. Isn't that part of the weight of Rachel Denhollander's story? Okay, maybe she was the first to accuse Dr. Larry Nasser, the gym, U.S. gymnastics coach, the, the, I mean, doctor and the doctor up at Michigan State. I mean, maybe she was the first to come forward. But more than 150 women lined up to testify against him in court. The sheer numbers, the sheer weight of all those testimonies lined up one right after another, pointing to the reality of the resurrection of Christ. That's Paul's point. There are witnesses. There are eyewitnesses. In fact, he's one of them. He adds himself to the list. He adds himself to the, to the list as least. I'm untimely. I was the last one. I'm, I'm, I don't belong in the same discussion with these people. But I've seen him. There's overwhelming number of eyewitnesses. Go ask them. Go find out their story. Go talk to them about the reality of Christ's resurrection. But he also shows us the necessity of Christ's resurrection. They, they object. They, they don't believe the body rises from the dead. They don't believe the body, quite honestly, is really all that necessary. It's really just a, an accident. It's sort of a, a carrier for the spirit. It's a carrier for your soul. That's the part that lives on. That's the part that really matters. And so your body being in the ground, who cares? Yes, it's going to decay and decompose and, and stay there, but that's okay. It doesn't really matter. Because that's not... Doesn't really matter. It's immaterial. It's it's not the same as your soul. And so Paul, you know, sometimes it's helpful. You get into a debate, a discussion with someone. It, it's a debate or discussion, unless they're getting on your nerves. Then it's an argument, you know. Um. Sometimes it's helpful to actually grant them their assumptions. Just grant them their presuppositions. Just say, okay, you know what, let's go down that road. Let's assume for just a second that what you're saying is true. What would life be like? What would we have? What would the result be? What would the consequence be? If what you're saying 
be true, then then what? It, sometimes it's helpful in a debate, in a discussion with someone to do that. Paul does just that. He grants them the possibility, verse 12, that maybe, maybe Christ hasn't been raised. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? Okay, but if there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. Let's grant that for a second. Let's let's allow that assumption to stand. Then what? And that's what he does in verses 13 to 18. He examines the, the, the then what. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is a waste of time. And for that matter, so is your faith. Why believe? If Christ is still in the grave, why believe? Your faith is in vain, verse 14. It's futile, verse 14. 17. There's no Christianity without the empty tomb. You don't, you don't have Christianity without the empty tomb. Oh, but hold on, wait a minute. I mean, I thought it was the blood of Jesus that I needed. I thought I needed His blood to satisfy divine justice to reconcile me to God. I thought I needed His his perfect sinless life and the cross. I mean, we just sang the power of the cross, right? I mean, the Gettys didn't write the power of the empty tomb. Maybe they should have. Maybe somebody should write them. You've, You've got the words wrong. You've got the whole notion wrong. Paul says, without the empty tomb, the cross has no power. Without the empty tomb, Christ's death on the cross is just another death. It's just the death of, a, of any other criminal. It's just a, any other criminal being, being, being forced to face this heinous, horrible capital punishment. Yes, we need a substitute. Yes, we need Christ to live a, a righteous, sinless life that you and I cannot and would not and wouldn't want to apart from His grace. Yes, we need someone to suffer and bleed and die because we've committed cosmic treason and that debt has to be paid either by you or by someone else. And that someone else, in order to pay the debt for you, has to be righteous, has to be sinless. Yes, that's absolutely all true. But if his body is still in the grave, if Christ remains in that tomb, then he's died just another death. The same death as anyone else. The same death that everyone else has died so far. Yes, we need the power of the cross, but the cross has no power without the empty tomb. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Let me just show you this for a second. Romans chapter 4, the very last two verses. 
And we'll start at verse 23 just to make it so we're not starting in the middle of a sentence. But the words, uh, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, hold on, wait a minute. I I thought my justification depended on His blood. I thought my justification depended on His obedience. Paul's saying in in Romans 4, you actually need His resurrection to defeat sin and death. You need that empty tomb in order to be justified. You need that empty tomb to prove the, the adequacy and sufficiency of Christ's blood shed on the cross. You need that empty tomb to prove that the Father accepted that sacrifice in your place. To steal from David Platt, who I guess is still the head of the International Mission Board for the Southern Baptist Convention. He may be transitioning, I'm not sure. But anyway, he says this, if, you, if Christ has not been raised, you have staked the whole of your hope for eternity on the rotten, decomposed corpse of a Jewish carpenter who died 2,000 years ago. Your faith is a waste if Christ's body is still in that tomb. Our preaching is in vain if Christ's body is still in that tomb. Look at verse 18. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ. There's that term that, that normal term that Paul will use for dying, they've, they've fallen asleep. But then he changes his term in that same verse. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're lost forever. They're, they're never to be seen again. They, they've died. Yes, they, they died trusting in Christ, but those who have fallen asleep in Christ, if Christ's body is still in the tomb, then everyone who has died trusting in Christ is lost forever. They too are in hell, just like every other unbeliever. They too are facing God's wrath and curse for all eternity, just like every other unbeliever. And these are people who died in Christ. Why? Simply because Christ's body is still in that tomb. If there be no resurrection. All those believers permanently lost because of their sin. Or verse 19, if Christ only offers hope in this life, we are above everyone else to be pitied. The the ridicule, the mocking Christians have faced Forever. You realize Christian was a derogatory term? It started as a little Christ ones. It, was a, it wasn't the word Christians claimed. It was the word that outsiders threw on them, mocking them. They were burned at the stake. They lit parties for the Roman emperor. They've, they've, been, they've suffered and died all along the way. Why endure that if... Christ only gives us hope in this life. You throw your hands up and say, wait, 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 no, I recant. I take it all back. If my hope is only 
in this life. Are you familiar with Blaise Pascal? Um, Blaise Pascal was a, a French philosopher, mathematician in the 17th century, the early middle part of the 1600s. There's a, um, he, he has a, a famous book, Pascal's Pensée. It's thoughts, ideas that he wrote. One of them is fairly famous. It's Pascal's Wager. And in it, he basically makes the argument, you should be a, a betting man or woman. You should, you should gamble. And what you should gamble on is that God exists. See, if you bet that God exists and He doesn't, what have you really lost? Okay, you've lived a good life. You've been thoughtful and kind and, and, and self-sacrificial and self-deprecating and you've loved other people. And so you've, you've lived a life worthy of celebrating. You really have lost nothing if you bet that God exists and He doesn't. Obviously, if you bet God exists and He does, there's your hope of eternity. If, however, you bet that God doesn't exist and He doesn't, you've also gained, lost, nothing. Nothing really changes. The real problem comes if you bet that God doesn't exist and He does. And then you're dealing with <coughs> eternity in hell. You're, you're dealing with suffering the punishment of the fact that God exists and you've lived a life as though He doesn't. That's, that's Pascal's wager in essence. He's saying it's, it's worth it. Just, just bet. If you're a betting man or woman, just, just bet that God exists. You're, you're far better off. That's the safest bet to make. Paul says, I completely disagree with you, Pascal. If, if Christ is only granting us hope in this life, it's a waste. We are above all men to be pitied. Paul disagrees with Pascal's wager. He says, no, that's, that's a complete waste. If, if God doesn't exist and you live as though He does and, and you endure whatever you have to endure in this life for something that isn't true, that's a, you're to be pitied. That's a shame. If Christ remains in the tomb, Here's your connection to Genesis. We're, we're currently in the middle of a, a series through the book of Genesis. Here's your connection. If Christ remains in the tomb, the seed of the serpent wins. If Christ remains in the tomb, death, sin, gets the last laugh. Death gets the last word. Death reigns victorious. Death has not been defeated. We see the reality of Christ's resurrection, the necessity of Christ's resurrection. Finally, we see the benefits of Christ's resurrection. And, and there are several uh, benefits Paul rolls out for us. Consequences of Christ's resurrection. First, verses 29 to 34 there's a lot, I will admit, much sharper minds than mine. And, and there are bazillions of minds much sharper than mine. But minds sharper than my own mind 
have looked at that section and kind of said, Simon Kistemacher uh, taught at RTS uh, and, and his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he basically says, we don't really fully understand what Paul's writing about. There's information the church in Corinth would have about some of the things he says in this passage that we don't have access to. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on (laughs) sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Again, we don't... We don't know all the, the details that the church in Corinth would have known there, to use Simon Kistemacher's illustration. It's like there are footnotes missing that we don't have, but it was probably verbal interaction between Paul and the church in Corinth. But notice this, that section has to do with life and ministry. The resurrection of Christ makes Christian living and ministry have meaning. Paul says, I die every day. Take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Why do that if Christ be in the tomb? Why deny yourself? Why not eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? Why not eat and drink because this is the only life there is? Why bother laying down your rights for the good and care and love of others? Why bother loving other people? Why bother being kind and gracious and generous? If the dead are not raised, live it up in this life because there is no life yet to come. The resurrection of Christ makes Christian living and Christian ministry ministry have meaning. There's a second benefit. Because of the resurrection of Christ, you and I have hope for eternity. Look at verse 20. Paul calls Christ the first fruits. You know, you, you realize, I know this is painfully obvious, you realize there are no first fruits unless there are second fruits. If there are no second fruits, the first fruits are just the fruits. You don't call them the first fruits unless there's more fruits to come. How then is Christ the first fruits of the resurrection? Well, there must be more resurrections yet to come. That's you and me. That's us. That's our hope. Christ is the, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There are those coming behind Him who have hope in eternity, who have hope for their own resurrection because Christ has been raised, and we, united to Christ by our faith, expect our own resurrection. We too will be laid in the tomb, buried in the ground, but it'll be like lying on a bed, waiting for Christ to come back and wake us up, and reunite body and soul. A third benefit of the resurrection of Christ. It means 
the end of sin and death. Look at verses 25 and 26. He must reign until all uh, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is our struggle. You and I live in this in-between time, the now and the not yet. The has Christ defeated death? Yes, absolutely he has. He came out of that tomb on the third day. Yes, he's defeated, he's crushed the head of the serpent. He's defeated death. And yet, does do we still have death in this life? Will you and I probably most likely attend a funeral in 2018? Yes. Is there, a, is there a likelihood we'll attend a funeral in 2019? Yes. Death still is real. It still exists. It has been defeated, but it's not yet fully destroyed. The last enemy, Christ has defeated death in our place. And yet the, we still anticipate the day when it is fully and finally and completely destroyed. When Christ come, comes back, brings our bodies up out of the ground. He'll set us into a world in which there is no sickness. In which there is no death. There'll be no more flu. There'll be no more people dying from, from common sickness and disease like the flu. There'll be no more gunmen walking into schools and, and shooting classmates, shooting students. There'll be no more reason to accuse police of shooting an unarmed black man. There'll be no more reason to fear tornadoes and hurricanes and storms. All those things will be gone. There'll be no more, more teen suicide. There'll be no more post-traumatic stress disorder. All of that will be gone. That's the world Christ will come back to create. And He raises us up to live in that world where there'll be no more death, no more sickness. Look at verses 54 and 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We long for the day when sin and death are completely eradicated in the new heavens and the new earth. A fourth benefit of Christ's resurrection is that you and I will have a body fit for that new creation. We're going to be raised up out of the ground and yes, the perishable puts on imperishable. Was, was Jesus' body exactly the same? Yes. Well, but no. Well, but yes, because He held out His hands to Thomas and said, look, there the scars touch them. And people recognized him. They, they saw him. Hey, that's, that's Jesus. But people also didn't recognize him like the men on the road to Emmaus. And somehow he could appear in the upper room when, when the doors were locked and windows were closed. Does he have the same body? Yes. Well, but no. Well, but, but yes. You and I. Eternity isn't just floating on a cloud, playing a harp, looking like a little baby with wings, singing in the angel choir forever. Strum, strum. You're going to have a body. And, and, and Christ 
having been raised from the dead, having come from that tomb, He has the self-same body and yet not exactly the same body because it's freed from the, the perishability of this life. That's our hope. We too will have the same body, but not the same body. It'll be the imperishable version of this body. We'll be fit for living in that place. Johnny Erickson Tata, you're familiar with her, a quadriplegic for most of her life. She says this, You know, I always say that in a way I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct, but if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble. Because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. She doesn't need it there. Believer in Jesus Christ, that's your hope. That's what the resurrection of Christ is. It's not just so that you can wake up on Easter Sunday and hide Easter baskets and eat a bunch of candy. That's all fun and good. But we're celebrating the the resurrection of Christ who by His resurrection guarantees our own. That's your hope. If you trust in Christ this morning for your salvation... You're trusting in Him not just for this life, but for the life that is to come. If you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, He hasn't been, risen, he hasn't been raised for you. He didn't die for you. You're still in your sin. And Paul would say, if we could rewrite his, this chapter, you are most to be pitied. Run to Christ. There find forgiveness. Find a willing and able Redeemer who has defeated all that sin can throw at you. Death being the last rock, the last stone, the last blade that sin could throw at Him. He took, He absorbed and defeated and said, I've done it all for my people. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, You have indeed done it all. You are truly the risen King. If You don't come out of that tomb, sin and death are King. You are subject to sin. You have proven. Oh, how many of us hold on to sin in our lives and think, I I trust in Jesus, but for this sin, I'm just not sure He's strong enough. How many of us hang on to pain and struggle and say, I'm just not sure Jesus is able to handle this. By your resurrection, you've proven your power and authority over all. Until the day comes when all are lay at your feet as your subjects, until all are subjected to you 
fully and finally and completely forever and ever? Would you grant us the grace to live in this in-between time? To live longing for, hoping for Your return, longing for, hoping for our own resurrection? And may it be that the reality of Your resurrection would fuel, empower, drive our Christian living and ministry in this life. Because you have come out of that tomb, you can defeat sin and hard hearts and disbelief. Would you equip us, strengthen us by the reality of that empty tomb to live for Christ? For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.